to unpack the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of election by asking and answering four important questions. I hope that you'll understand a little bit more of this doctrine as we ask and answer four important questions. What are they? Number one, what is it? What is election? Number two, how does this teaching, how does election relate to present salvation or justification? So what is it? How does it relate to our present experience of salvation or justification? Three, what's the point? I mean, why, why, why is this doctrine even taught? And then four, maybe the biggest, one of the biggest um, obstacles or biggest points of controversy is this. Doesn't this doctrine promote human arrogance? So what is it? How does it relate to a present salvation? What is the point of the doctrine? And doesn't it promote human arrogance? The word elect there just in the first verse, Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one sent with a message, and he is sent with a message, and he is writing this message to those who are elect exiles. That word elect, just basically, it means to be called out, to be selected, to be chosen. In all the scriptures, we read of the electing or choosing work of God. This doctrine, election, as we try to figure out what it is, election, I would say this, election is God's work of choosing or electing a people to call his own. God's work of choosing or electing a people to call his own. He's chosen people out of the world. It began all the way back with Abraham. Of course, we saw it there and choosing to make a nation of him. He's chosen these people out of the world in order that they might belong to him. In our present context, these people make up the church or the, the assembled ones, the called out ones. And this choosing, this electing, is a gracious choosing. And what I mean by that is sometimes you'll hear the word unconditional used with the word election. And when, when you hear that word unconditional, what you want to understand is that it's just referring to graciousness, God's grace. In other words, before the foundation of the world, God chose who would be rescued from their sin without respect to them meeting any conditions as the basis of their choice. We all understand. Justice would be served if all of us perished. It would be good. It would be righteous. It would be fitting. It would be fair if all of us perished in our sin. Therefore, election is gracious and free. In other words... It is owing to nothing in me. Absolutely nothing. On what basis does God elect? To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, now down to verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now you need to look at that phrase very carefully according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I told you before, I used to think that this term meant that God 
since he is all-knowing in eternity past, looked down the corridors of time and saw who would believe or saw that some would believe in him when they heard the gospel. And on the basis of that decision in the, per, in the present time, God then chose according to his foresight. In short, God looked to see who would choose him, and then he chose them. Now, the unfortunate thing is that it, it can't mean that. It, that, that. That seems like a nice way to pack all things together, but it can't mean that. When he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it can't mean that he looked down the quarters of time and saw who would believe, and then he chose them. Why? Two reasons. One, a semantic reason. Just, just the meaning of the word itself. The word foreknowledge does not mean foresight. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. He, Jesus, was, and here's the word again, foreknown from before the foundation of the world doesn't mean that God the Father knew that there would come about this Jesus. He looked down the quarters of time and said, oh, look what's going to happen. I'll make that part of my plan. The word, you've heard me say before, the word knowledge in the Scriptures often used the word to, to refer to intimate knowledge. In this case, it means that God determined to have a relationship, a, a saving relationship to individuals from before the foundation of the, the world, from before the foundation of the earth. So I would say like this, if you're a believer in Christ, you can be sure that before the world was created, God, in his infinite love and wisdom, determined that he would have a relationship with you. So on the basis of that determination and that determination alone, he set out to bring you to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from your works, apart from your merit. He said, I'm going to do this in this person. So it can't mean foresight because of what the, the word actually means. But I think even a stronger um, reason that it can't mean that is just what the scripture says. So follow with me to a couple places in scripture. Look at John 10. I'm going to read to you some passages here, three or four. And I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to answer that question in your own heart. <clears throat> John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Question, are we his sheep because we believe, or do we believe because we are his sheep? Look at John 17. Verse 
John 17, verse 6. High priestly prayer of Jesus. As he prays, he says, I have manifested your name to the people, the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Question. Do we belong to God because we come to Jesus, or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? John six thirty seven. They were yours. Uh, uh, he says here, John 17, they were yours and you gave them to me. John six thirty seven, probably the, the greatest verse on election in the Bible. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Look at Acts 13. And this was ultimately the verse that sealed it for me. Perhaps it will for you. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Question, is election based on foreknown faith or does faith happen because of election? Do you believe and thus enter into your appointment to eternal life or had you been appointed to eternal life and that is what enabled you to believe? Acts 18. I'll just give you one more and then we'll move on just for time's sake. Paul is there in Corinth The Lord, verse 9 of Acts 18, the Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. This is the way that God speaks of doing evangelism in light of divine sovereignty. So what the scripture says is about election is that election is the gracious choosing of God setting his love on a people from before the foundation of the world not based on any precondition or prerequisite foreseen in the sinner. God does not choose you because of what you might do or might become. God sets his love on you in order that, you, that he would overcome your moral, your spiritual inability. In spite of the fact that sin touches every area of your life. Election is God's gracious choosing. 
God's gracious decision to set his love on a person before the foundation of the world. Well, second question. How does this then relate to present salvation? The the present experience of salvation or present justification? Back to 1 Peter for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1. We see once again what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, down to verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Our election finds its origin in the foreknowledge of God the Father, but how do we get from that which took place before the foundation of the world to today? That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. All right, that happened then, but, but how does that affect today? I have found this this quote from John MacArthur really helpful. Listen. Being elect and being saved are two different things. You can be elect and not be saved yet. Right? He said Christians are chosen from the beginning but are saved in time. When the Spirit sets a believer apart from sin, darkness, and unbelief, and turns him toward God, light, and faith. So this is key to understanding. You can be elect and not yet saved. I have many people in this city. And this is seen in the flow of grace in that great passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And then He sets this flow for us. For those whom He foreknew. Notice it's not that He foreknew, but those specific ones whom He foreknew. He also did predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's in eternity past. And those whom He predestined, He called That's in the present. Those whom he called, he justified. That's in the present. And those whom he justified are the very ones that he glorified in the future. So we have this this seamless um, flow of grace from eternity past to eternity future. And right in the middle is this present act of calling or present act of justification. God's work of election that he set on us from before the foundation of the world, is carried out by the present work of the Holy Spirit. When he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, he's referring to the present work of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly the point that Jesus was making in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Remember? He's talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, trying, and Jesus is trying to explain these things to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who ought to have understood these things, but he just didn't. And he says, you have to be born again. You've got to be born from above if you want to even see the kingdom of, of heaven. And Nicodemus is racking his brain thinking, how in the world am I going to be born from above? How in the world am I going to be born from above for, for again? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb a second time? This is, I, I don't understand this. You're not, it, it's not computing. You're not communicating to me, Jesus. And then Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about that physical rebirth. I'm talking about the spiritual rebirth, being born from above, being born of the spirit. 
And he said, well, how do you know if you're born of the Spirit? Jesus said, well, you know, it's like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind in the trees. You can see it moving and say, well, there was wind there. How do you know when you're born again? And Peter says it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is the sphere of our election. It takes place in the sanctification of the Spirit. I like the New American Standard much better here. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What is sanctify or sanctification? It means separation. It means consecration. It's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit of setting believers apart from sin to God. The Spirit does that by unleashing the heart from sin's bondage. You see, what happens is we are all bound in sin. Our, our will is created to be free, but it's, 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 it's only free to choose what we want. And, and what we want is sin. So God, by His Holy Spirit, comes in and releases us from that bondage, causes us to be born again, or I like the King James Version, causes us to be quickened from above, applying the word of God to the heart of the sinner and thus enabling him to believe. You see, you don't believe to get born again, you get born again to believe. It's exactly what Wesley had in his mind when he, sing, when he wrote that hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And what does he say? Praise me? No, he says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? (laughs) What I'm saying to you is, how does that election get applied to the present time? You see, a lot of people misunderstand and think that there, that there is no call to, for, the, for the sinner to believe, that there's no call for the sinner to repent, and then there's nothing that can be further from the truth. There comes a time in the heart of the elect when they finally hear the word and actually start to believe it. And the Spirit of God is actively producing faith, Ephesians 2 Eight, he's actively re- uh, producing repentance. Acts eleven eighteen, this is re- the work of regeneration. Titus three five, it's the work of adoption. Romans eight sixteen and seventeen, which is why we are so word centric here. We've come to realize that it is through the Word of God that the Spirit of God is active to bring about the faith of God's elect. And let me say it this way: it is through the Word of God. That he gives new life to sinners, enabling them to respond, enabling them to believe. So, what do we do? We faithfully scatter the word like a sower sows seed, and we trust the Lord for the outcome. We know that the seed that falls on prepared ground will most surely come to fruit. One of the things I hear about the doctrine of election is saying, well, if you believe the doctrine of election, you're not committed to evangelism. And I don't know how else to say it other than to say that simply ain't true. Those who believe the doctrine of election are, have been throughout the history of the church the most eager evangelist the world has ever known. 
I believe that the doctrine of election and few things like it have spurred the evangelistic and missionary zeal of my life. You see, because I I have come to understand this, I'm free to go to any place in the world and to any person and to endure any kind of treatment and boldly and freely and compassionately preach the gospel knowing that God is at work to bring a people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. So I don't have to manipulate it. I don't have to make it more attractive or make create the right mood music or the perfect lighting so that somebody will respond so that the little hairs in the back of their necks stand up and they feel some some kind of electricity. I don't have to do any of that. I just have to preach the word. Because see, what happens is, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this age has blinded the eyes. And the only way for them to become unblinded is for the Spirit to be breathed on them through the word of God to open their eyes to the truth. And when somebody opens their eyes to the truth that I'm preaching, I don't stand back and put another notch on my belt and say, wow, look at me. I was pretty convincing. That was a pretty snazzy presentation of the gospel. And neither, when somebody doesn't believe, do I go and jump off a bridge because I just messed up. It dest- this doctrine destroys the tendency of man to not only selfish boasting, but to a, a more arrogant kind of um, guilt. And, and this doctrine fuels my prayer life. I, I've often found, that's why I say to you, don't, you know, if, if you're struggling with it, don't sweat it, but, because we all pray like we believe this anyway. We, at least I hope you do. You pray for God to save people. We pray for people to come to Christ and we realize that only God can change the heart of man. And so I go boldly to him, be asking him to, to bestow his grace in such a way that that it all results in his glory to the lives of people all around. I mean, that's what makes me, I, man, I can go anywhere. You say you're going to kill me? All right. It doesn't make a difference that, you know, you, you're going to make me not want to preach the gospel because you want to pull my toenails out. God is at work in his sovereignty. God is at work through the preaching of the word. And so I just have to say that. You know, if you're still lost in your sin this morning, if you're still in bondage to your sin this morning, I can say that that there is great news, and the great news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just keep laying that gospel out there, and we don't know when, but God, by, his, by an act of His grace, will breathe life into that dead sinner. I was talking to somebody in Uganda last night, and they said, praise the Lord, Pastor Joe. We were preaching. They do this. They preach the gospel. They go out into the, to the streets and preach the gospel. And he said, two people believed on Christ on Saturday night. And he said, this morning, one of them showed up in the church 
He was a drunk yesterday, and today he's proclaiming his faith in Christ. What can do that? So what is election? It's the gracious choosing of God. How does it come into time and space? Through the activity of the Holy Spirit as, it's, as he's present in the ministry of his word. And, and that's why he says, and as many as were called, you heard that call in the gospel and you believed it. Well, what's the point of election? Why do we even teach this? Again, look back at 1 Peter chapter 1. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and then look, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The most likely objection to the doctrine of election is that people think it, that, that election cancels human responsibility. Well, it cancels the need for the cross of Christ. I heard, heard those objections. If that's the case, then Jesus didn't have to die, and it's useless to tell people to come to Jesus. And again, I don't know how to respond to that other than saying it simply isn't the case. Peter makes that point very, very clearly right here. In the mind of the Father, God plans the salvation of man according to his foreknowledge, purchases the salvation by the work of the Son on the cross, and applies that salvation by the application of the word to the heart of of that individual by the Spirit. Believers are set apart for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Now listen, you hear that for obedience to Jesus Christ and you think, it, it, you, you, we tend not to think about that as being very foundational to what it means to being a Christian. We, we think of that as later, we think of that as, as Christian maturity. This is not a reference to Christian maturity. It's something that happens down the, the road and that's where the error of, of um, easy believism has come about. The idea that Jesus, you know, you, you make Jesus Savior, and then sometime later you make him Lord of your life. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible speaks of it as in terms of obeying Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ. Romans 1.5, Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. The Holy Spirit sets you apart. The Holy Spirit applies the word of God to your heart as he did so that you might obey Jesus Christ. That is, you might submit to him. You might submit to his lordship. You might come to him in faith. God initiates and God applies and God completes salvation. You you come to him in humble obedience. Right? That's the point. The point of election is to bring you to obey Jesus, to actually volitionally submit your will to the lordship of Christ for and for the sprinkling of his blood, which reminds us of the events in Exodus chapter 24. It was there that Moses confirmed the covenant with God's people, and they heard the words of the covenant and pledged to submit to the authority of God. And Moses then took some of that blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people as a symbol, as a covenant symbol. 
The point being that we're separated from one master, namely sin, so that we can have another master, namely Jesus. When you trust Jesus, you are submitting to him as Lord. There's, there's not two uh, uh, parts of Christianity. There's not two levels of Christianity. Well, I'm a, I'm a savior. Jesus is my savior Christian, but I'm a Jesus is my Lord Christian. There's not two parts of it. Somebody's rightly said, if he's not Lord of all, he's not what? Lord at all. That's the point. God elects us, sets his love on us, decides, and then brings that into present experience by the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God so that when we hear the word of God, what do we do? We radically change the orientation of our life to being followers of Christ as Lord. And we don't, we don't take any credit for that. Which leads me to the last question. Doesn't the doctrine of election promote human arrogance? I've heard this many times. And... Um, not, not so much in terms of, of an objection, but just like I, I can't. It sounds to me, we, we think of it in our human experience, right? We're all standing around like I used to on the kickball field, elementary school. And man, when somebody chose you on their team, you kind of like, look at me. Unless it was like for me, it'd be like, well, look, I'll give you those three people and Joe. You just go, right? And you kind of feel like you're the worst person in the world. Doesn't the doctrine of election promote human arrogance? Well, as a result of this simple, really simple teaching of biblical truth, the heart of the believing sinner is overwhelmed. Look what he, look what he says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Our hearts are overwhelmed, really, with the sense of the unmerited favor of God. That's grace. And the resulting peace that we have with God. Again, to quote MacArthur, he said, Peter wanted the recipients of his letter to experience all of the rich and varied blessings of being God's elect. Today, however, the tendency is usually to avoid election's profound implications. Christians often justify such an attitude by claiming the doctrine is too deep, too confusing, or too divisive. But believers ought to rejoice over the glorious advantages that an understanding of election provides. And this verse points toward a few of those. I don't know that there's any more of a pride-demolishing doctrine in all of Christianity than this doctrine. Because if you are a believer today, you are a believer because of God's work in your life. You did nothing. You, you were dead. Remember that years ago, we had that evangelist come here, Tommy Whitsitt. He said, you weren't just dead. You were two-syllable dead. You were dead. You were dead. You were powerless. You were, you were in your sin, but God. But God, recognizing your incredible worth, but God, understanding how much you would add to his existence, 
but God, understanding that you were so worthy. No, it doesn't say that. It says, but God, being rich in mercy. Why being rich in mercy? Because he couldn't even just have a little bit of mercy. He had to have the overflowing abundance of mercy. That's how deeply sinful we are. You tell me you're going to stand there and boast because you've just preached a doctrine that talked about how wicked and evil you are to your core and that you're dead in your trespasses and sin and can do nothing of any value to God. You can't ever even please God, which means you can't even believe Him. And that's arrogance? <laughs> what? No. This is humbling. I'm humbled when I consider the reality of the radical depravity, and I'm doubly humbled when I consider God's work of gracious election. No room for selfish boasting in heaven. No one is going to be standing with their head held high and hands on their lapels, their chest stuck out in glory. No one. The final analysis, when I stand beside the drug-addicted prostitute on the side of the street, I know... That we both have the same kind of heart. There's nothing in me that is any better. This destroys. The church needs a good dose of this doctrine today because the church has been so arrogant for so many years thinking that we're better than the common sinner. I haven't repented of my sin or believed the gospel because I'm somehow better. I haven't done that. No way. Someone said, I am but I, what I am by the grace of God and that alone. That's how, you, that's how you can go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Think about listening to uh, the testimony. Many of you remember Perry Hildebrand when, when his son was in drunkenness and he said I literally he was in the gutter with the smell of urine he said I got down and I picked up my son and I cleaned him up when you know how radically depraved you are and how much you owe to God's grace you will stop at nothing and this is lived out every day in our view of God not only our view of God but our view of ourselves and and our view of others how do you think a person who's come to grips with or is coming to grips with this truth will treat his friends and relatives? How do you think he'll treat his fellow Christians? We know because Paul tells us in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, put on love. So I have no misunderstanding that many Christians and many churches don't believe this doctrine because that is a very rare practice within the church today. A very rare practice. So doesn't this promote human arrogance? Actually, it destroys it. It destroys it. What is election? The gracious choosing of God 
on no precondition, but before the foundation of the world, setting his love on a people, setting his love on you. And how's that impact present experience of salvation? Well, there came a time in your life where you heard the gospel and you go, I believe that. Remember, you hear people talk about it all the time. I, I had a white knuckle moment. I, I heard the gospel and I was under such great conviction that I, I knew I had to respond to the gospel. I was telling somebody the other day about uh, the testimony of Roy Fry. Some of you remember Roy. And he said uh, he was a mean booger of a guy. He said, one day somebody told me, he said, they, they said to me, Roy, you're a nice guy, but you're going to hell. He said, that was all they said to me. He said, I went home to feed the chickens that night, and as I was walking out there to feed the chickens, I heard them cackling. He said, but they weren't talking chicken talk. They were saying, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. That's what I heard. He said, if my legs could carry me fast enough, he said, I walked down that old boardwalk from the chicken house back to the basement, and I got down by that old day bed, and I said, oh, Jesus, save me, a sinner. He was under such great conviction. And that's God, by his work, brings the, the, the word to bear on the heart. And, and it's inexplicable. That's how it relates to our present justification. And then the question, um, what is the point of election? The point is to draw us to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to make us obedient. Yes, you must obey. You, you believe, you, you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and doesn't it promote human arrogance? No, it destroys it. It was the doctrine, this doctrine, that drove the Apostle Paul to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Listen, just practically, I know many of you are struggling with, with all kinds of heartache and heartbreak and temptations and trials and sickness and difficulty right now. And some of those things are very, very hard and could drive you to the brink of total and utter despair. But God, (laughs) we, we drink from the fountain of the sovereignty of God this morning and we leave refreshed and encouraged and confident that absolutely nothing well, see, that's the, that's the natural outflow of this. That's why we believe that when you're a true believer in Christ, you will never be lost. Never. Praise the Lord. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning a believer in Jesus Christ because of Him. That's my hope. That's my righteousness. No matter what goes on, we have an eternal salvation. And when I say eternal, I mean from eternity past to eternity future to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. So Father, now we thank you for just this these few moments to look together at wow. An eternity of